Chapters 3 and 4 of The Barnabys in America by Francis Milton Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 A narrative full of mystery and interest recorded by a father to his child. Natural emotions of the youthful mind. Prudent resolves. Notwithstanding the dauntless style in which the spirited young bride had received her father's rebuke upon the penniless nature of the connection she had formed, she was not altogether unconscious that it was deserved, or indifferent to the dangers which might arise to herself and her darling were Pa to get downright cross with her. It was therefore with no lingering movement that she scrambled across the room after him, threw open the door again, and sprung upon the back of his neck just as his foot reached the first stair, much after the fashion of a favorite young Newfoundland dog who has attained his full size, but not his full gravity and discretion. Most assuredly, Mr. O'Donagough was in no playful mood, and perhaps his very first impulse upon receiving this powerful caress was to have rejected it with equal vigor by a backward movement of the leg just raised in act to mount. But he felt that it was the hand of Patty that was at his throat, and his one virtue mastering him, he turned round with something between a smile and a frown, saying, Don't be a fool, Patty. What do you want? Want? My own dear pop? Want you, to be sure? How could you run away from your own poor dear Patty so, and she just married too, and all for nothing in the world but because she wanted to have a bit of fun with you? Come along back with me, Pa, and see if I don't listen to all you have got to say, as grave as a judge. You see if I don't. O'Donagough, wholly overcome by this pretty naivete, very lovingly threw his arm around her waist, and returned into the room they had left. But still his step and manner were so very solemn that Madame Tornorino began to be frightened outright, and when he had placed her in one chair and himself in another, exactly opposite to her, she looked as sober and sedate as he could possibly have desired. "'It will be necessary, my dear child,' he began, "'in order to make you fully understand my present very embarrassing situation, that I should relate to you some circumstances of my early life, with which you are, and indeed your excellent mother also, as yet unacquainted.' While still a very young man, my dear Patty, and, to speak with the degree of frankness necessary to the full comprehension of my singular history, by no means ill-looking, in fact, I was exceedingly like yourself, Patty. At this period, my dear, I unfortunately happened to be quartered with my regiment at Windsor. The regent, subsequently our beloved monarch, George the Fourth, was holding his splendid court there. The precise time of which I speak need not be mentioned. Indeed, for many painfully important reasons, it will be greatly best that I should avoid doing so. And I will, therefore, beg of you, my dear, to ask me no questions. All that is essential you should know I will freely communicate to you. And for the rest. Here Mr. O'Donagough paused for a moment, and rested his forehead upon his extended hand, as if wishing to conceal some too powerful emotion with which his soul was struggling. But after one deep-drawn sigh he proceeded. Amidst the brightest ornaments of that splendid court, my dear child, was a young lady possessed of a degree of beauty which, even at this distance of time, I cannot recall without a violence of emotion that shakes every nerve, and teaches me that there are feelings that neither time nor circumstance can obliterate. But, alas, my Patty, the dignity of her birth and station equaled the beauty of her person. The proudest nobles of the land vied with each other for her favor. All the world loved her, but she, alas, alas, loved me alone. This too lovely, this too beloved lady, was in the habit of walking frequently upon the terrace of the castle. 
her high rank ensured her admittance at all times, and I, from my military command, found it only too easy to invent ostensible reasons for being there also. That terrace, that noble Windsor Terrace, Patty, is known to billions, and remembered fondly by all who have seen it as one of the most enchanting spots on earth. But, alas, where is the aching, throbbing, palpitating memory which recollects like mine? Where is there another heart which bounds, yet sinks, which trembles, yet exults at the mere sound of its name as mine does? My child, it was upon that terrace that the mutual love of that noble lady and your too happy, yet too wretched father was mutually confessed and mutually returned. She loved me, Patty. Loved me, did I say? She worshipped, she adored me. And I, can you blame me, my dear child, if— here Mr. O'Donagough was very strongly agitated, notwithstanding his evident struggles to master his feelings, he found himself obliged to draw forth his pocket-handkerchief and apply it to his eyes. Can you, I say, blame me, Patty, if I loved too? Good gracious, no, Papa. Not the least bit in the world, replied his daughter. I am sure you would have been a most horrid monster of a man if you had not. But do go on, Pa, and tell me what happened next. Did you run away with her, as my Don did with me? Patty, I dare not tell you more of this eventful history. Well, I never, exclaimed Patty, looking exceedingly disappointed. No, never in all my life heard anything like that. Just as if telling could signify now when it must have been such ages and ages ago. Don't be foolish, Papa, there's a dear good man. But go on, and for goodness sake, tell me all that happened between you and this grand lady. Well, to be sure, it's no great wonder that you hold your head so high as you do sometimes. I must say that for you, Pap. But pray, does Mamma know all about it? Whether she does or not, however, don't signify a straw, for I am positively dying to hear the rest, and hear it I must. So go on, Papa, when I bid you. For the rest, my dear, there is but little more that can or ought to be said, replied Mr. O'Donagough, with an air of discretion befitting the circumstances. All that I can further relate concerns myself only. The vigilant eyes of those who surrounded the noble lady, who, by the way, it is necessary I should tell you was a countess in her own right, were not slow in discovering how matters stood, and the consequence to me may be easily guessed. Though well-born and highly educated, and with a military reputation, for why should I deny it, Patty, of the very highest class, I was still considered as immeasurably below the noble object of my love. Her proud and cruel friends would not for an instant endure the idea of a marriage between us, which would make her title descend to my offspring. I was ordered to go abroad immediately, and a multitude of injurious reports were industriously attached to my name, in the hope of estranging the heart of my beloved countess. I went, Patty, a broken-hearted wanderer. I quitted my native shores, and looked my last upon my noble love. But guess my agonies when I tell you that almost the first news I received from England brought me the account of her marriage with a nobleman of rank equal to her own. It is torture to remember it. But no more of this, Patty. I must not, I dare not dwell on all I have suffered. Years rolled on and brought with them the healing balm that ever rests upon their wings. I saw your excellent mother. I saw, admired, wooed, and won her, Patty. And, oh, for her sake, as well as for other most important reasons, I would not wish this history to be greatly talked of. That you should converse respecting it with your mother is, of course, perfectly natural. But do not dwell upon the passion I have described to you. It may pain her. By your own feelings for Don Tornarino, my dear love, you may guess what hers are for me. 
the high nobility of my first passion will not suffice to heal the mortification arising from knowing that she never could have been more than second in my heart. You will now, in your present situation, easily understand all this, and will have too much tenderness for her, I am sure, to wound her feelings unnecessarily. You understand me? Yes, I suppose I understand you, Papa, replied Patty, but I can't help thinking that what you say is very nonsensical, because it is downright humbug and nothing else, to talk of you and Mamma being like Tornorino and me. However, I'll do just whatever you like about it. And though you are so old now, it is a beautiful love story as ever was wrote in a book, and I must and will tell my Don of it. You won't mind that, I suppose? No, my dear Patty, not at all, replied her father affectionately. On the contrary, my love, I wish him to be acquainted with all the peculiarities of my situation. They are very peculiar, and now I must proceed to explain you why it is that now, for the first time, I consider it proper to open my heart to you on this painful subject. It is, believe me, a theme inexpressibly distressing to me, particularly at this moment, when I would willingly have devoted myself to making the early days of your married life, my poor child, pass gaily and joyously. But, unhappily, I am compelled to announce to you the very disagreeable fact that, unless your husband has a home of his own to take you to, your honeymoon, my pretty Patty, must be passed on board ship. Good gracious, why? I shan't like that at all, I promise you. I mean that Mama shall go out with me directly to buy some wedding clothes, and there will be no fun in being fine unless there is somebody to admire me. I do beg, Papa, that wherever you are going you won't set off till I have received all my visits, and returned them, too. I am dying for my cousin Elizabeth to see my wedding ring and hear me call my tall, grand-looking husband Tornorino. I am certain as that I am here that she will be just ready to die with envy. Nothing can be more natural than your feelings, my dear Patty, and it grieves me to the heart that I cannot indulge you in them. But you have not heard my sad story yet, my dear. The persecution I have undergone has been terrible beyond belief. As long as the sweet angel lived, I was obliged either to remain out of the country, or else return under a feigned name, and live in the most complete retirement, to avoid the possibility of her knowing that I was near her. Alas, Patty, a jealous husband is the most terrible of tyrants. God grant that this dreadful fate may never be yours. Oh, there is no danger at all of that, Papa, for I love my handsome husband a great deal too well to let anybody else make love to me. That is a great blessing, my dear, a very great blessing. But to return to my sad story. One might have hoped, Patty, might one not, that when the lovely countess was no more, the tyrants might have ceased to persecute. The hope of this was, I assure you, the only thing which enabled me to retain my senses when I lost her. But no, even in this I have been deceived. For a short time, indeed, after my last return from abroad, on which return you and your excellent mother accompanied me, I was permitted to breathe the air of my native land unmolested, and it was dear to me because it was the air my Eleonora had breathed. But last night I received the astounding information that your appearance at court, where you were recognized as my daughter, had given rise to the most injurious suspicions. There are persons in certain circles, Patty, who have not scrupled to hint that the excellent woman, whom before heaven I declare to be your mother, is no more to you than your nurse, and that your real mother was no other than the lamented Harris I have named to you. This, as you will immediately perceive, throws a doubt upon the succession to her title and estates which, if it takes wind, may plunge the whole of her noble family into the horrible exposure of a trial and a lawsuit, 
I have accordingly received official hints that unless by at once withdrawing myself I relieve the family from this alarm, measures will be immediately resorted to for the purpose of removing me from England forever. I leave you to guess what my feelings were on receiving this intimation. Why, they don't mean to say that I ought to be the countess, do they, Papa? demanded Patty with considerable vivacity. Not exactly that, my dear. No one, I believe, has hitherto ventured to assert as a fact what, under the circumstances, it would be so exceedingly difficult to prove. Nobody as yet has gone that length. But, be this as it may, of the necessity of our immediately leaving England there can be no question. Were I to delay a week, I have little doubt that I should find myself an object of the most tyrannical persecution, and that probably for life. I have therefore no time to lose, and I have taken this early opportunity of communicating these facts to you in order that you might make up your mind either to accompany your mother and myself to the United States of America or to go immediately with your husband to such home as he can provide for you. How do you decide, Patty? I will tell you in a minute, Papa, if you will only let me ask you one or two questions, she replied. Then make a short work of your questions, Patty, for I have no time to lose, said Mr. O'Donagough once again portentously knitting his brows. "'Don't look cross, Papa, and I will have done in a minute. And please, in the first place, to tell me whether it is quite sure and certain that I can never be a countess in my own right.' "'I am sorry to say, my dear, that there is not the slightest chance of it,' gravely replied Mr. O'Donagough. "'That's no go, then,' responded Patty with a slight sigh. "'Now then,' she resumed, "'my next question is, whether being so fond of me as you are,' and I your only child, whether, I say, you could not give me, before you go, fortune enough for me and Don Tornorino to live on here a little, in good flashing style, just to plague the Huberts and that nasty beast Jack, before we go out after you and Mama to America. Here again, my dear child, said Mr. O'Donagough, with a truly paternal smile, I recognize the most natural feelings, and believe me, I fully sympathize in them, but I lament to say that what you ask is altogether impossible for the tyrants who pursue me with their jealous vengeance. Do you mean the lady's husband, Papa? cried Patty with a sudden burst of irrepressible curiosity. Pardon me, my dear, I cannot answer, replied her father with solemnity. Nor is it in any way necessary that I should, in order to make you fully comprehend my position. Whoever they be who pursue me, their power over me is such that I cannot, without the most imminent risk to my liberty and even to my life, attempt to realize any part of my property. Indeed, I have but too much reason to fear that by far the greater portion of the funds upon which I reckoned as the source from which your fortune should be drawn, and our own handsome manner of living supplied, will be rendered entirely unavailable by this last stroke of barbarous jealousy. All that can be done for our future comfort, depend upon it, my dear Patty, I will do. But if you and your husband, after properly taking into consideration the fact of my almost ruined fortunes, shall still decide upon accompanying us into exile, it must be with the understanding that you are uniting your fortunes to those of a poor man, compared to what I believed myself to be, a very poor man, and must conduct yourselves accordingly. Patty looked exceedingly grave and remained silent considerably longer than was her wont on any occasion but her father wished to hear what she had got to say in reply to his communication, and waited patiently till she spake. At length, after heaving rather a deep sigh, she said, with an expression somewhat indicative of alarm upon her countenance, "'I don't know what my Don will say to it, Papa, because I always told him that you was so monstrous rich. Good gracious, what shall I do if he should grow cross about it and leave off loving me? I do think upon my honour that it would drive me mad.' 
in that case my dear love replied her father composedly i should of course turn him out of doors immediately what my own dear darling husband and i left by myself without any husband at all no no mr pap you'll do no such thing as that i promise you what you must do is this dear papa you must squeeze out every penny you can save from every other earthly thing and give it all to my dear don and that you know will keep him in good humour even if you don't happen to live out in america in such a grand house as this that is what you really will do my own dear darling pap isn't it and patty sprung across the space which divided them threw her arms round his neck and began kissing him with more vehemence than she had ever done before save once when she had conceived an ardent affection for a pink satin dress which his fiat alone could enable her to obtain upon that occasion she had succeeded the pink satin dress had been the reward of her kisses and it was perhaps the remembrance of this fact which made her now shower them so liberally but her father seemed not in the kissing vein for he disengaged himself though gently from her clinging embraces and quietly replied the best thing you can do patty is to tell your husband the whole of the melancholy story which i have just told you he will then understand how things are and if as i suspect his own circumstances are such as still to make his sticking close to us the best thing he can do i dare say he will have common sense enough to keep his ground without being very troublesome it is indeed not impossible that i may find him useful and in that case i have no doubt but we shall go on very comfortably patty pretty well knew when there was anything to be gained from pa and when there was not the present use of which experience was to make her quietly walk off saying that she would soon make her dear don understand all about it chapter four philosophical thoughts brief review of the financial affairs of mr o'donagough conjugal harmony and unity of purpose pleasant jestings mixed with serious thoughts to prepare his beautiful patty for the change she was about to undergo was perhaps not the least disagreeable of the various operations which mr john william patrick allen o'donagough knew that he had to perform before he set out upon the expedition which as doubtless all the world will remember general hubert had so strenuously recommended it had taken the affectionate father some fifteen or twenty minutes to decide in what manner the news could be conveyed to the happy bride his daughter with the least annoyance to her sensitive feelings but from the moment the matter presented itself to his imagination in the shape which had been shown forth in the last chapter every unpleasant sensation vanished nay the interview which he had previously dreaded became in a considerable degree agreeable to him it is i believe a notorious fact in natural history that whatever instinct or faculty nature has bestowed upon an animal with predominating strength causes in its exercise the most decided gratification and it would be difficult to bring in evidence a stronger confirmation of this interesting phenomenon than the state of feeling produced on the mind of mr o'donagough by the act of lying his spirits seemed to rise his faculties to expand themselves his features assumed a look of animation and intelligence inconceivably beyond what they ever manifested at any other time and if the observer's eye could have gone deeper and penetrated to his heart it would have been found gaily bounding in his bosom in a sort of triumphant jubilee at the bold feats of his undaunted tongue on the whole therefore the half-hour he had bestowed upon patty had done him good and it was with no faltering voice that he called to her as she quitted the room bidding her to send her mother to him mr o'donagough was as we have said a man of very considerable firmness of nerve and had never at any period of his life been found infirm of purpose 
Within half an hour of leaving his third drawing-room on the preceding night, in the manner described in a former series of the records of this interesting family, he had pretty fully made up his mind as to what he should do with himself and his belongings. Though he felt that the earth was not wholly before him were to choose, he was aware that quite a sufficient quantity remained open for him to prevent any embarrassment on the score of elbow-room. Nor had he that very dispiriting misfortune to contend with, which arises from the want of those sinews so well known to be necessary in every operation which man carries on, either with or against man. His lady's provident wisdom had taken care, at the time of their marriage, that all that was hers should remain her own, and her little income was therefore, as long as they remained together, a sort of pialé fund, which would always prevent their being in actual want. This was well, snug, comfortable, and soothing but this was by no means the most agreeable financial feature in his case. From the time that, to use his own phrase, he had sown those wild oats which had, in some way or other, occasioned his last excursion across the ocean to the present period, when it was likely that a second voyage would be the best remedy for the little contretemps which had occurred in his third drawing-room, he had never ceased adding to that small stock of private pocket-money which he had begun to collect at his sociable whist-parties at Sydney. It is hardly fair, perhaps, to lift the veil of reserve by which he had ever kept the amount of this concealed, even from the wife of his bosom. But as accident has made me acquainted with the amount thus collected, I am tempted to name it as a proof, useful may it be to the unthrifty, of what may be done by steady and persevering labor. Mr. O'Donagough, then, at this time, stood possessed of a sum amounting to £12,899, of which his wife had no more knowledge than the man in the moon. And this, be it observed, was safely stowed and funded in the English stocks, so that it was exclusive of the contents of poor Mr. Ronaldson's purse and pocket-book, which, however, amounted to very nearly a thousand more, and which now made the pleasant feeling lining of his own coat-pocket. Assuredly, if ever man deserved the honourable title of a chevalier d'industrie, it was Mr. John William Patrick Allen O'Donagough, for never did he lose an opportunity of putting his time to profit, let it occur at what period of twenty-four hours it might. It may be thought, perhaps, that, in this statement of Mr. O'Donagough's possessions, I have carelessly overlooked the very showy furniture of his handsome house in Curzon Street, but in point of fact I have been strictly accurate inasmuch as no single article of that furniture had been paid for, and consequently, in a statement so precise as the present, it could not properly have been brought to account. Mr. O'Donagough was in the act of mentally running over precisely the same figures as I have been now laying before the reader, when the door of his library opened and his wife appeared. The interview which was about to take place would have been considerably more agreeable to the gentleman's feelings, had he deemed it advisable, in stating to his lady the sudden necessity for breaking up his London establishment, to have indulged in the same imaginative species of narrative as that in which he had conveyed the same information to his daughter. But after a moment's consideration, his admirable judgment decided him against attempting anything of the kind, for he felt that, in the first place, it would rob him of the advantage he might hope to obtain from the very acute faculties of his admirable wife, and, secondly, those very acute faculties, now fully ripened into strong practical sharpness, would be exceedingly likely to detect what was purely inventive, and thereby render his explanation of no effect. Determined, therefore, to be as candid in his exposition of facts as if he had been stating matters to his own conscience, he lost no time in circumlocution. "'Shut the door, wife,' he said rather gravely as Mrs. O'Donagough came in, and then added rather in a lower key, "'And you may as well bolt it, my dear, and then we shall not be interrupted.' "'Dear me, Mr. O'Donagough, how very foolish this is of you,' 
she replied, but obeyed his command, however, before she advanced into the room. I know exactly word for word what you are going to say, as well as if you had spoken it every syllable already. Do you, my dear? said O'Donagough. I doubt it. Yes, I do. You are going to make a preachment as long as my arm about Patty's marriage, and what good is it when the thing is done and over? I know very well that I would rather have had an English lord for her, but there's no use fretting about it, and I will never forgive you as long as I live, if you refuse to give me down a good handsome sum of money out of your last night's winnings to buy the dear creature's wedding clothes. A good deal of it I know we may have on credit, but not all, nor anything like all. And if you please, I want to set about it immediately. I have not the least objection in the world, my dear, replied Mr. O'Donagough, and if you will be kind enough to hear what I was going to say, which has nothing whatever to do with Patty, you shall set out and buy the wedding clothes immediately after, if you like it. Mrs. O'Donagough was too reasonable a woman to ask for a fairer promise than this, and accordingly she placed herself in the chair that her daughter had just before occupied, and replied, Now then, Donny, with the most sweet-tempered smile in the world. It is rather an awkward thing, my dear, that I have got to mention to you, and if you were not the devilish clever woman that you are, I should never tell you of it at all. But if you will set your wit side by side with mine, I am not the least bit afraid, but we shall get through the business perfectly well, and do better for what I know than if it had never happened. And what has happened? replied his wife, in an accent of considerable alarm. Why, first and foremost, that hideous old maid, Elizabeth Peters, hit off the truth last night as cleverly as if she had been the witch she looks like, and obligingly addressed me as Major Allen before Mrs. Stevenson civilly requesting to tell her why I had changed my name. "'Insolent wretch! See if I won't be revenged of her impertinence!' exclaimed the sympathizing wife. "'And what did you say to her, my dear?' "'Why, my love, I had not time to say much, because that very fascinating personage, Mrs. Stevenson, and this above-mentioned Miss Elizabeth Peters, had politely concealed themselves behind the curtains of the recess in order to watch me play piquet with Mr. Ronaldson.' Foxcroft was in the room with us, and, good-natured fellow as you know he is, he gave me, half in fun you know, of course, a hint or two of the cards Ronaldson held, all which these charming ladies saw, and at the very moment when I was in the act of making so good a thing of it as would have made it signify but little whether Patty's Don were rich or poor, they popped out of their hiding-place and told Ronaldson not to sign the cheque, for that he had been cheated. Audacious wretches! exclaimed Mrs. O'Donagough, her expressive countenance beaming with rage. Oh, my dearest Donny, had I been there, they had dared not for their lives have done it. In your own house, too, when they were enjoying the protection of your roof and reveling in the magnificence of your splendid hospitality. Surely it is unprecedented in the annals of visiting. They shall be exposed for it. They shall be known for what they are, or my name is not O'Donagough. Why, Donny, I shall never again be able to own my connection with them. They have disgraced themselves for ever. All very true, my dear, replied her husband composedly. But, nevertheless, Ronaldson did not sign the cheque, and I shall be obliged to leave the country with as little delay as possible. Leave the country? Leave Curzon Street? And just when I am going to show off my darling Patty everywhere, as the youngest and most beautiful married woman in London. Oh, it is impossible. You never can be such a brute, 
cried the unhappy Mrs. O'Donagough, in the most piercing accents imaginable. "'You do not appear to see this affair with your usual clear-headed good sense, my dear,' replied her husband, with exemplary gentleness of voice and manner. "'Perhaps you are not aware that if I do not take myself off, and that, immediately, the Secretary of State for the Home Department will have all the trouble upon his own hands. But even in that case, you perceive, your bridal gaieties would be equally defeated, for should we go, at least I should, and under the circumstances, I don't think you would find your residence here at all agreeable afterwards. What do you mean, Donny? said the vexed lady, looking at his placid countenance with considerable indignation. What have all the secretaries of state in the world to do with our staying in this beautiful house or leaving it? If you are only joking and making fun of me, as you do with that fool Foxcroft, I never will forgive you as long as I live. That would be very terrible, my dear, he mildly replied. But fortunately at this moment I run no risk of the kind, for I certainly do not consider the matter as partaking of the least degree of the nature of a joke. "'Nor do I see anything like fun in being transported for life.' "'Transported!' shrieked Mrs. O'Donagough. "'You don't mean it. "'You don't mean to say, husband, "'that you have really been such a fool "'as to do anything to put you in the power of those horrid women. "'You don't mean to tell me that. "'Oh, Donny, Donny, I shall go mad.' "'God forbid, my dear,' he replied, "'without varying a muscle of his truly philosophical physiognomy.' Anything of the kind would be exceedingly troublesome just now. But really, my dear, you agitate yourself much more than there is any occasion for, and to tell you the truth, I thought my Barnaby was too much a woman of the world to suffer such an occurrence as this to shake her courage so violently. If you will but see the thing in a proper light, and give me your assistance in getting everything ready, and in giving the whole affair rather the appearance of a party of pleasure than anything else, I have no doubt that we shall do extremely well." There are many people of very high fashion in the United States, particularly at New Orleans and in the other slave states, and if we contrive to manage our affairs only as well as we have done before, my dear, you may depend upon it, we shall soon find ourselves in the very highest rank of society, and perhaps better off than we have ever been in our lives. Mrs. O'Donagough was a woman of strong feelings, yet nevertheless she was always, or almost always, amenable to reason, and long before her husband had ceased speaking, her fine spirit had recovered its tone. She felt able, and perfectly willing too, to take the particular bull which now appeared to face her, by the horns, and by the noble exercise of the faculties of which she felt proudly conscious, to do battle with whatever difficulties might assail her. Nothing doubting, from the hints her judicious husband had thrown out, that her reward would now be what it had so often been before, namely, the placing herself considerably in advance of all her fellow-creatures, the envied of many, and the admired of all. From this point the conversation proceeded in a tone of conjugal confidence and sympathy that might have served as a model to all the wedded sons and daughters of Eve and no greater proof can be given of the happiness of such a self-contented temperament as that of my heroine than the fact that the interview which brought to her knowledge the proof of her husband's standing in the most imminent peril of being transported for life left her in a state of spirits the most animated and the most happy that can be conceived just as she was going to take her departure in order to set about her own preparations and leave her husband at liberty to make his she suddenly stopped short and exclaimed but my dear donny what in the world am I to say to those dear, good Perkinses? And to that handsome creature, Tornorino? Upon my word, that must be thought of. It has been thought of, my Barnaby, returned her husband with a playful smile that quite illuminated his countenance. 
Patty will tell you. But no, he added, it will be safest for me to give you a sketch of the thing myself, that you make no blunders when you hear the dear child allude to it. Just listen to me, my dear, and I will make you understand why it is that I am obliged to leave the country. Mr. O'Donagough, then, with some humour and very considerable enjoyment, ran over the heads of the history he had been recounting to Patty concerning his early passion, and, for a few gay moments, felonies, flittings, transport ships, and Botany Bay were all forgotten, and both the gentleman and lady laughed heartily. "'There certainly never was anything like you, Donny,' said the lady as soon as he had finished. "'You have made my sides ache, I promise you.' "'And there certainly never was anything like you, my dear.' he replied with a very gallant bow. I have often told you that you were a wife made on purpose for me, and so you are. End of chapters 3 and 4